Trump says COVID has turned the corner. Biden says turn him out. And I say let's turn to the pre-election episode of The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. And like to you, and think to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 351 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. Well, here we are. Voters are ready to tell us how they viewed the past four years. The question is, is the country ready to accept it? There's so much to say about what's been happening in the past week. The Trump rallies, the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, the 60 Minutes interviews, all that stuff. But I just want to get right into this week's show. First, with the Washington Post's Amber Phillips on the battle for control of the Senate, and then with Mike Murphy, the Republican strategist, on Trump and the future of Trumpism. It's a good show. But before that, this week's trivia question. Polls show that Donald Trump is in danger of losing, and perhaps taking down his Republican majority in the Senate with him. When was the last time a Republican president was defeated for re-election and the GOP Senate majority was lost as well? Send your answer to trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. We'll select a winner at random from the bunch. The winner will get a fabulous vintage Political Junkie button. Again, that's trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. It may have been the longest four years in the country's history, at least in recent history, but a nation that found itself torn apart four years ago and which may be even more divided is now in the process of rendering its decision. Four more years? Or enough is enough? It's possible that President Donald Trump, with an impeachment, an epidemic that has taken more than 225,000 lives, an economic collapse, accusations of corruption, and racial unrest, may have the same amount of support he had four years ago. Joe Biden, after being dismissed early in the primary process, is leading in the national polls and, more important, in many of the key battleground states that will determine the winner. For him to win, he needs a larger turnout from his fellow Democrats this year than what happened in 2016, when many refused to vote for Hillary Clinton, either because they thought she had the election in the bag or because they just didn't like her. But the same states that determined the election four years ago, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, and Michigan, remain the key to this year's winner as well. And if the presidential race wasn't intense enough, there are at least a dozen or so Senate contests that are still in play and could go either way. If you want to know how important a Senate majority is, just ask Amy Coney Barrett or Merrick Garland. The electorate is angry. Both sides are angry. And the anger is not likely to dissipate no matter what side wins. Amber Phillips is a political reporter for The Washington Post, Her stuff is often found in The Fix, the Post's political blog. 
Amber, welcome back to The Political Junkie. Ken, thanks for having me. Well, you know, I, I, I know we seem to tense up before every election. I know I do. But, but this one, my goodness. Right. Uh, you know, I was just on the phone yesterday with uh, a, a former lobbyist who now is an ethics and democracy expert, Meredith McGee, with Issue 1. And she was saying, you know, part of the reason this feels so tense is just we have a president um, and a party, although both parties to some degree, that have just busted through norms in a way that makes it feel like, you know, this our democracy doesn't necessarily have a safety net anymore because norms are what kind of have been holding our rules and, and regulations and behavior in the foundations of our democracy in place. And now we're barreling toward this election with everything you just described going on, um, feeling like there just isn't a safety net. Well, when you have a president who basically basically attacks the foundations of voting, the uh, democracy, uh, the likelihood of an unfair or fixed election, it, it makes a lot of people wonder and say whether their vote really matters, whether it counts and whether it's worth it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, in, in my earlier interview, I did not mean to both sides this situation because you're, you're, you're right, Ken. It's the president who's leading the charge on questioning the foundations of our democracy uh, to the extent that it's just we're going to marvel at this in a couple of years. I think that social media companies, major social media companies are censoring what he says because it's just so inaccurate and misleading and arguably dangerous to democracy and, and how people want to vote. And then, of course, he has said that, or, or he's refused to say, I should say, that he's open to a peaceful transfer of power, which is another remarkable thing that only uh, adds to this tinderbox moment we feel, right? I was going to say remarkable is one way of putting it exactly. Yeah, I don't, I don't have words. <laughs> I don't have the right word. I think what most people can agree on, though, is that Joe Biden is leading in the polls and we know that President Trump dismisses these polls as fake. But among Democrats, I hear everything from the possibility that Biden could win a landslide uh, to those who remember 2016 and thought, you know, Hillary Clinton had it locked up. <laughs> no pun intended. But I guess my question is, how do you see the race just days away? Uh, it's pretty stable, actually, I would say. Um, it, I, I would say that you know, Joe Biden has been leading nationally by an average of, what is it, 9 to 11 points, and it's been that stable since the summer, uh, surprisingly. And then in swing states, he has leads. They're a little bit more narrow, ranging from, like, one point in Florida, uh, you know, dead even in states like Georgia and Texas. To that's, that's, inc that's incredible, by the way. It's incredible. A lot of these states, all of them in the swing states, are ones Trump won in 2016, um, but... You know, it's just incredible to see him also competing in these redder states. Uh, Republicans and Trump are certainly on defense. So my point is, you know, he's leading in these swing states. If those leads hold, it looks like he could win. We have some time <laughs> before the before election day is over and, and results are counted. What about those who said, well, you know, the polls showed Clinton the winner four years ago. Why should we believe the polls now? Uh, you, you know, that's a great question. I think it's fair to have skepticism of polls. Even the polling experts will tell you polls are a snapshot in time. Right now, today, they say Joe Biden would win. The election isn't today. Uh, that being said, the polls in 2016 
nationally still predicted things that, you know, Hillary Clinton would be within a two to three point range. And she was of winning. She just came out on the other side. But polls in states failed to to capture um, late deciding voters. Uh, They just failed to, through their calculations and who they talked to and a bunch of complicated polling stuff, failed to understand that people who were undecided ultimately decided to go vote for President Trump. And in addition to that, in states like Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, uh, more Democratic reliable voters just didn't go vote at all. The polls were unable to capture that. So this time around, we're seeing a ton of Democratic enthusiasm, um, and we could see that start to tick up for Republicans in the coming days as well. I think it's still a fair question that I have skepticism of the polls, even though pollsters have really tried to, to, to tweak their calculations um, in terms of who they're able to capture with the better understanding of what happened in 2016. Pollsters will tell you they feel more confident. Uh, but, but I just want to say it's a snapshot in time, and they'll say this too. It's not predictive of what's going to happen in a couple of days. Florida determined the election in 2000. Ohio did did the same thing in 2004. What states do you think we should most be looking at? Well, I think the obvious ones we're going to hear about are Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And that's for a reason. It's because those are the three that really helped push Trump over the edge uh, and win the White House by a narrow vote. And then in, in each of those states, it was very narrow. We now see Biden leading in those states. And if he were to win all three and then everything else kind of stayed the same, he would probably win the White House. Um, And then there are some states that he's Biden is competitive in where I think it would be really, let me say this, where analysts suggest it might be game over if Biden were to win. Yeah. You you mentioned, you mentioned Texas and Georgia. That's, that's wow to me. I mean, just the thought of it. I don't know if it happens, but just the thought of it is wow. Uh, North Carolina is another big state that if Biden wins, it could suggest you know, because it is more swingy than these others, that that it just isn't going to work out for Trump. Um, Florida. Ohio, Florida, another one. It's very hard to win either Ohio. It's very hard to lose Ohio or Florida and win the White House for any side. You know, we're witnessing a record number of early voting and mail voting. Do you have a sense if that favors one candidate over the other? Uh, Right now, we're seeing early stats and we've seen in polls before early voting got started, that it tends to favor Democrats uh, and that just Republicans, for whatever reason, have decided or or heard from their party this message that they need to go vote in person on or close to Election Day. And so we could start to see, you know, numbers for Republicans tick up in the coming days as we get closer to Tuesday. Do you think the debates played a role at all? You know, I actually talked to some Democratic strategists, and they have (laughs) their own lens they see things through, who thought the first debate actually did play a role. Uh, One told me, you know, he was seeing in focus groups and polling that President Trump just being uh, so combative and interrupting felt like he, the president was sort of lifting a veil into how he works on a daily basis and how he thinks uh, in a way that voters don't normally see. You know, that's very different than a 10-second clip you might see on your evening news or, re- or read a quote from the president or see a tweet. To see it all strung together for 90 minutes, you know, he thought played a role in, in continuing to keep suburban voters, women voters, 
older voters, white educated voters away from the president and just sort of solidify their decision to, to vote Democratic this time. You know, it seems, it has seemed for the past seven months or so that the election would be a referendum on Trump's handling of the COVID virus. And now we, we know the president thinks the coverage of the virus is little more than a media fixation. That's all I hear about now. That's all I hear. Turn on television. Right? COVID, 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 COVID. A plane goes down. 500 people dead. They don't talk about it. COVID, COVID, COVID. <laughs> But it's the reason why millions are voting early or by mail. It's the reason why 225,000 Americans have died. And it's probably the main reason why Biden has his lead. I don't know where to, to go with this question. I mean, Trump has promised a vaccine for months, and we have yet to see one. Given how the virus has affected so many millions of households, how is it that Trump could still well win this thing? Yeah, I think you're right that the coronavirus is like the one headline, the one scandal, if you will, he has not been able to shake for months now, for months and months and months. This is the thing he cannot shake no matter what he tries. So many of Trump's critics have been wondering, what sticks? Why is he Teflon? This isn't fair. Well, the pandemic and particularly Americans' perceptions of his response to it uh, and his inability to, to help get it under control have it just been impossible for him to to shake off. That has stuck. In terms of your question of how Trump wins or whether he does, I think it's still possible, of course. The Washington Post ABC has a poll out today that shows Michigan much narrower than it might have been a couple of days ago. So let's say Trump can pick up Michigan and uh, some of these toss-up states like North Carolina and Florida and Ohio go his way. Uh, and then he maybe picks up a bluer state, which is a little harder to do, but like a Minnesota, he will probably lose the popular vote in large part because of what you described as coronavirus handling, but he could eke out an electoral college victory. Let me move to the Senate. Here's what we know. Here's what we know. There are 35 seats up, 23 are Republican, 12 are Democratic. Democrats need a net pickup of three if Biden is elected president, four if Trump wins to win the majority of the Senate. There's less than a week to go, and there's still at least a dozen races that are still up for grabs. That's pretty remarkable. It is, yeah. Democrats have been saying all election cycle, watch us, watch us. We're going to put these races in play. You know, we're doing what we need to do to recruit candidates and raise money. And they're right. <laughs> a week before, there is a lot of competitive races. And what's worrisome for Republicans is a lot of these competitions are happening in Republican-leaning states where they're suddenly on the defense and they didn't expect to be. Lindsey Graham in South Carolina is a great example of seeing his opponent raise just obscene, insane amounts of money, record-breaking, and just smash through them. And, you know, Lindsey Graham went on Fox News and said, can, can you guys please help me? It's an extreme example, but I do think it's emblematic of how Republicans are back on their heels uh, in these Senate races. That being said, they are happening. Uh, in conservative states and Republican-leaning states. Okay, let me start with the Democratic seats, uh, because there there are fewer of them in, at play. I think in Alabama, it's fair to say that most people assume Doug, jo Doug Jones is a goner. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, okay. And there's some indication that Michigan's Gary Peters and Tina Smith of Minnesota are facing closer than expected challenges. One, do you think that's true? And two, if so, why? 
Yeah, I think what I'm hearing, especially uh, about Gary Peters, it, is it is true uh, that Democrats are worried that this was kind of a sleepy race. They didn't think it was going to be super competitive. Uh, you know, they thought the Republican challenger, uh, John James, just wasn't a sharp one. And then all of a sudden, you know, Republican super PACs started pouring in money. John James himself is a great fundraiser. Uh, Democrat super PACs came in as well. And then it, it, the, just, the race just suddenly tightened, um, especially when James has done a good job of Michigan's kind of a blue-leaning state of not being super-duper pro-Trump, despite the fact that he is a pr- uh, pretty big regular on Fox News. Okay, now the Republicans. Um, there are many—boy, uh, there are many considered highly vulnerable. Who tops your list? Uh, I would say Martha McSally in Arizona and Cory Gardner in Colorado. Um, Colorado is or maybe even was a purple state that's just trending blue because so many people are moving to the Denver area suburbs and they tend to be younger and they're voting. Martha McSally is interesting. She lost the Senate race in 2018 to a Democrat, one of the first times a Democrat, I think it was at least a decade, if not longer. No, 1988. That was the last time. But the point is they don't do it a lot. So she lost. She got appointed to John McCain's seat. um, And now she's struggling again. And I think she, like Cory Gardner and others, had just wrapped her arms around Trump. That's what she needed to do to keep the base. And then you're starting to see her, like, attempt to back away from him. In a recent debate, she wouldn't say whether she was proud of supporting him. And uh, in the meantime, she's got a really strong Democratic challenger, former astronaut Mark Kelly, who is also uh, one of the strongest fundraisers for Democrats in 2020. Husband of Gabby Giffords. Exactly, yeah, and, and a gun control activist. What about uh, Tom Tillis in North Carolina? Yeah, he's interesting. I think he is or has been, uh, for much of this cycle, a vulnerable Republican senator. But even Democrats in North Carolina will say it's like the swingiest of swing states. Uh, it could go either way at the presidential and Senate level. We're starting to see polls that show his Democratic challenger getting ahead. And that hasn't, this is remarkable, Ken, that has not faded, even the revelations that his Democratic challenger, Cal Cunningham, had an affair and, and text messages about it leaked. And it just, uh, the whole thing is pretty yucky. And yet we don't see evidence that that's damaging him in the polls. And we can't conclude this highly vulnerable list without mentioning Susan Collins. Mm-hmm, exactly. She's another one, you know, that I think the race, or the battle for the majority could tip on. Uh, I think if you know people want to just watch one race, it would be the main one. She's been in Congress for decades, and Democrats have really wanted to take her out for some time now. And in the Trump era, they feel the stars have aligned, especially if she voted after she voted for Brett Kavanaugh to go on the court, being the, this you know kind of dramatic deciding vote then. And she also has a strong challenger, um, Maine House Speaker Sarah Gideon. When Susan Collins voted for Brett Kavanaugh, a lot of people thought, well, okay, she has to be doomed for uh, 2020. Then she votes against. She's the only Republican to break party lines and votes against Amy Coney Barrett. But somehow I feel that may be too little too late. Yeah, um, I think Democrats are still trying to tie her to what the court could do, which is knock down Obamacare in a couple, when they hear the case in a couple weeks and then decide in a couple months. And so they're trying to not let her insulate herself too much from the fact that she voted for or against, excuse me, Amy Coney Barrett. 
and abortion and abortion rights, which of course has been a, a mainstay for Susan Collins from the beginning of her career. But yes, that's right. That's right. So Democrats feel like she is tied to this conservative Supreme Court, um, and certainly the polls would suggest. It just happened on Monday, but I just haven't seen any evidence or any sentiment that Susan Collins stepping away from Republicans on, on this latest nomination is going to help her very much. Democrats are also competitive in other states, uh, such as Montana, Iowa, maybe Georgia, maybe Kansas, maybe South Carolina. Uh, what say you? I, I think, yep, that's all right. Particularly, it's hard to pick which one to watch the most. Uh, Montana would be huge. I think if Democrats won that seat, you could probably say, okay, they're going to get the majority. It's a state Trump won by like 20 points, and Trump's numbers uh, there are much closer. I think the latest New York Times Vienna College poll had it at like seven to eight points, uh, and that's made it very difficult for Steve Daines to try to stay reelected. You know, as much as Democrats wish it, it's, it's hard to imagine Lindsey Graham losing in South Carolina. But as you said earlier, my goodness, Jamie Harrison is raising a boatload of money. Yeah, he's done enough to make it competitive and make us all raise our eyebrows and talk about it. I recently wrote a story about the surprises of the Senate battle. Like, what would we see next week and go, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that. And I think a Jamie Harrison win tops that list in South Carolina. And that's because... There still isn't evidence that there's enough people willing to vote to send a senator, a Democratic senator there. I would, I would assume the same thing is true of Mitch McConnell in Kentucky. As much as Democrats would love to see him gone, I just can't see him losing. Yeah, that's right. I can't either. I took him off my list recently of like the most competitive races. Okay, so less than a week to go, uh, Amber. Do, do the Democrats win the majority? I don't know. I really don't. I think they're in a good position to do it, but this is going to come down to like one or two seats. A Republican strategist told my colleague it's on a knife's edge, and I agree. Amber Phillips is a political reporter for The Washington Post and writes for The Fix newsletter. Amber, it was great having you on the program, and have a great election night. Oh, thank you. You too, Ken. I'm With just days to go in the race for president, the question is less who is going to win and more, how the heck did all this happen? You could understand, I guess, how Donald Trump won in 2016. Think James Comey, Russian interference, unhappiness with Hillary Clinton, unhappiness with the status quo. Fine. But given the past four years, given how Trump has conducted himself and the presidency, how is it possible that he could do it again? And should he fail, what happens to the Republican Party and the country? 
Mike Murphy, I will tell you up front, is one of the smartest and most astute political observers in the country. He's a longtime Republican consultant and strategist who famously worked for John McCain's upstart challenge to George W. Bush in 2000. Among his other past clients were Jeb Bush, Christy Whitman, Lamar Alexander, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. He didn't support Trump in 2016, and this year he has endorsed Joe Biden. He has teamed up with Obama alum David Axelrod to form the Hacks on Tap podcast. And he's here with his thoughts about 2020. Mike, it's just great having you on the program this week. Well, thank you, Ken. I'm excited to be here. I am a fellow political junkie. Well, that's why I have you, and that's why I've always admired you. And every time I watch you on TV, I said, my God, nobody says it the way Mike says it. So I'm a, I'm a big, <laughs> big fan, as you know. You have, well, thank you. you have a better understanding of the GOP than, than anyone I know. How did we go... How did we go from the famous Mitt Romney autopsy, the, you know, the analysis of what the Republican Party needed to do to survive following the defeat of 2012, which included recognizing the changing demographics in the country, to today where, where members of Congress from both the House and Senate have stuck by Trump through every crisis, every scandal, every lie? How'd that happen? Well, it's amazing and a depressing tale. Um, the autopsy was actually driven more by the donors of the, the large donors of the party than anybody else, because they were irate that Obama won. And the practical politicians kind of knew there was a problem. So the autopsy was the first step. But ultimately, it failed to really get into the meat of the problem, which was the country is changing demographically. We're only competitive in the one big demographic, but not big enough anymore, Caucasian voters. And to change, we got to really change. It's not about hiring a Maharaji band at the photo op. You know, It's about policy and all the tough stuff that our, our caucus wasn't that interested in, most of them. Because in the modern era where everybody in Congress, almost everybody has a pretty safe district now, it's all about your primary voters. Then Donald Trump comes along, and there's always been kind of a populist hunk in the party. But his fame from television and his what, again, they perceived those voters as his credential, that he was this master deal-making guy. You know, because they'd seen him on TV for 10 years, even if all he was doing was firing Gilbert Gottfried for not selling enough <laughs> popcorn at the photo op that some company paid him, just like they're paying Gilbert to pretend to work for him. But anyway, to make a long story short, then we had the populist revolt, and there were too many regular candidates like mine, Jeb Bush, uh, and people selling opportunity conservatism, which had been kind of the party's way to move into new demographics and to expand our base. There was very little market for it. People had grievance. They wanted to punish Washington. They wanted to punish politics. They wanted to publish, punish the leadership uh, class of the Republican Party. And Trump came along with a bullhorn and a sledgehammer, and he was famous. So he didn't have to raise a lot of money and do all the traditional things candidates do to get a platform. He just had that pop celebrity fame. He, he was kind of like a dark, bizarro land version of Arnold you know, who also came in with a persona that people thought was the right thing. And to his credit, I worked for him. I was there. Arnold took it seriously. Heavy policy staff brought in pros. Warren Buffett, his economic advisor, he knew what he didn't know. Trump was the opposite. He had the celebrity, but, but very little else. But it was enough. He hacked the party and took it over. And then he kind of hacked the election by getting lucky in those Midwestern states that hadn't voted Democratic since, uh, excuse me, hadn't voted Republican. They'd voted Democrat since the 80s for president. 
And by, you know, a narrow uh, couple of votes, that was enough to pick the Electoral College. And then we had, but then COVID came along and gave Trump a platform to fail more spectacularly that even a somewhat mediocre candidate uh, like Joe Biden can just power right through him. And Biden's been shrewd about that. Uh, so, you know, we'll see. But um, the question is, will the party want a reformation or do they want more Trumpism going forward after Trump pretty much wipes us out politically? The conventional wisdom in D.C. is Trump forever. I'm not sure. But I'm thinking of all the the number of Republicans who've endorsed Biden this year. You have you have Colin Powell and you have John Kasich and you have Tom Ridge and and Bill Kristol and Jeff Flake and Michael Steele and Charlie Sykes. You know, the list goes on and on. But the key is none of the people I just mentioned are currently serving in office. That has to tell you right. something. Well, nobody has to worry about a, a primary voter. I mean, I've had this conversation. You know, I, I don't do candidates anymore, but I did a lot of senators and congressmen and governors. And what, they call me up and they say, Murphy, I just saw you on NBC trashing Trump. It was great. God, I'd like to be able to hold a press conference in my district or my state and say that. And my wife would speak to me again. And I feel better because I was in the Oval last month and Trump can't even work the remote control for the TV. He's out of his mind. He's unfit. I say, well, why don't you? He says, well, if I do, the next day I've got a primary. Some guy in an Uncle Sam suit with an aluminum hat will be <laughs> three points behind me. Trump will tweet. I very well may lose. And then we either elect a complete nut or a socialist Democrat. And Trump doesn't change at all. It won't, it won't change his behavior. It'll just blow me up. So what's the, out, uh, what's the upside that does anything other than my political suicide? It doesn't change Trump. And then I say, well, if six of you guys did it, it would force Trump to move. And then the, the senator or congressman would say, no, you're absolutely right. Call me when you got the first two. I'll be number three. The, the liberals want the Aaron Sorkin finish, where Mitt Romney and when he was alive, my old friend John McCain, John puts on his old flight suit and his medals, and they, they all lead a march on the White House, and the Republicans put handcuffs on Trump and lead him out of the office. <laughs> and the liberals all cheer, they cry, and then they all vote Democratic for the rest of their lives again. Doesn't work. Romney's a conservative, and he's just played it straight on Trump. I, I think on policy, they're split. They do like the judges. Um, they don't trust the Dems uh, ideologically. But then privately, they have a lot of ideological beefs for Trump. It's one of the reasons that I'm an anti-Trumper. I, I've been a Trump hater since 92. You know, trade, Trump's wrong and disastrous. Spending, Trump has forgotten we're at least supposed to, on occasion, be the party that doesn't want to absolutely soak the country in debt. He's actually exceeded Obama, and that's before COVID. You know, kind of the, the loudishness, the absolute contempt for the Atlantic Alliance has kept the peace since World War II, the contempt for our own intelligence services. So quietly, there's a lot of, you know, the, the sucking up to Kim Jong-il, the uh, 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 Putin, the, the dictator love across the board. So on some big things, they're with him. You know, I mentioned earlier about the judiciary, and if you're a Republican, you have to like what Trump has done to the judiciary, naming more judges to the bench than I think any president in memory. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett is now his third member of the Supreme Court. But now, I know politics ain't beanbag, but the way Barrett was rushed onto the court a week before the election, yeah. when Merrick Garland couldn't get a vote or even a hearing when it was 10 months before the election, look, I know no party has a monopoly on hypocrisy, but... But this one just feels stunning. Yeah, I mean, I'm tied up in a pretzel over it that even the Grand Rabbi of Jerusalem probably couldn't figure out. Because on one hand, I'm a conservative and I'm fine with conservative judges. And McConnell's really done it. You know, it's been too adroit for Trump 
Trump's just let Mitch run the judge show, uh, and, and Mitch has been able to uh, get some conservatives on the court. The problem is, I think the Republican Party owes kind of a, a debt to the country for all the institutional destruction that Trump has done. The lying, the, the uh, you know, the basically using the government to make money in his private businesses, the horrible person. I can go on and on. So we got Trump, who's this big, like, tooth decay, corroding our public institutions and tearing down people's faith in democracy, which is a huge sin against the country. Uh, and turning the other eye, well, foreigners do it, too. So since the Republican Party is kind of in the pit, I think we kind of owe the country some good behavior. And the problem with jamming a judge in late the way we did, which I think the Dems probably would have done, too, but we kind of carry an extra burden here of good behavior for a while, I think. Now, that's a very, you know, I, I, we think that over in Republican voters against Trump, but I wouldn't say it is the view of you know, the majority of our elected officials federally. But between that and the Mary Garland, you know, um, the idea of this, this late jam is just uh, it's just wrong. It, 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 even though I, I'm not unhappy with the outcome, though, I was very disappointed that Judge Barrett decided to go be a prop in a political rally. I thought she was smarter than that. And I hope John Roberts told her to knock that that stuff off because that was embarrassing and totally, totally uh, um, corrosive. Uh, to sit there and like Pinochet's wife and wave from the balcony at the White House in a reelection campaign. So maybe she's not as good as I, I thought she was. But bottom line is, uh, on one hand, I like the outcome, like most conservatives. On the other hand, I think we, we can't be rule breakers anymore. It's bad for the country. And, and we've looked the other way when, you know, the party has. I haven't uh, at, at, at all Trump's transgressions. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to pay a political price uh, next week. But uh, yeah, it's, it's just not good. You know, we've heard so much from Trump about the evil of mail and, uh, and absentee voting. You know, they're trying to steal the election, and he says over and over. But we also know that with voter intimidation and vote suppression and compliant Republican secretaries of state, it's Trump himself who may be trying to rig the election. Um, or is that just more a liberal paranoia? No, it is. I mean, if he could, he would. And the great thing about Trump is that he's fundamentally incompetent. So even his worst evil schemes are hard for him to execute. And there are limited accomplish, uh, accomplices, though he sure tries to surround himself with it. But look, the attorney general, Trump won. Yeah, no, I, I, I sadly agree. So Trump won. Trump, Trump reminds me and other consultants will tell you this of a crank donor. We've all had experienced politics where you have to go meet the plastic coat hanger guy uh, who's just given half a million to the party or whatever. And it's some guy in a leopard skin house, five Rolls Royces, and he's explaining that he was the one who had the brilliant insight to go from wire, metal wire to plastic and revolutionize the whole coat hanger business. And that made him a genius. And he's got a lot of ideas about, you know, plastic aircraft carriers instead of metal ones. And you just have to sometimes <laughs> suffer these fools. I mean, you know, I mean, I I wrote a piece once, Senator, about poor Dick Carpark going out to listen to, for all I knew, Barbara Streisand, psychic nutritionist, you know, her ideas to save the planet. So, but now we got one of these blustering idiots actually elected president, and Trump really believes this stuff that I think he creates his own reality bubble that all the mail-in ballots are like fraudulent. Well, newsflash, the Republican Party, we kind of invented mail-in balloting, and it's been great for us because our suburbanites sometimes don't go have time to vote. So the convenience factor, look at a lot of California races. We've won because of the absentee. 
And and so the middle level, you know, apparatchiks in the Republican Party hate this Trump attack on mail-in stuff. Not to mention how corrosive it is for the country because he's 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 you know pushing down the ability of Republicans to use use that tactic. So I think Trump wants to say election day is all that counts, and therefore the election day results are all that counts, and therefore if they're good for me, I won regardless of the reality. And that's going to be really dangerous because uh, we're going to have Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. A couple of the key states are going to have a slow count because they only start to count the absentees by law on Election Day. Now, other states like Ohio and Florida count as they come in, which is why if we're working so hard at rvet.org to pound on Trump in Florida, because if we we do well there, we're going to know. We're going to know election night or the next morning. And if, if Biden's won Florida, as you well know, it's, it's put a fork in Trump. He's toasted because no Republicans carried the uh, president won the presidency about Florida in 96 years. And same for Ohio, which also counts in real time, where Biden right now, I've seen internal Republican polling. Biden's ahead narrowly. So either one of those are a backbreaker for Trump that could save us that nightmare. But I have no doubt Trump's going to try to create that nightmare. And, you know, his hardcore 30 percent of the country is going to believe it. And that's a huge problem. You know, we know, I mean, I know you know that elections can be a bloodbath. I think of Barry Goldwater in 1964, I think of George W. Bush in 2006. Republicans were routed during those elections. And when Obama was president, Democrats got clobbered in 2010 and 2014. If Trump is the most divisive president in memory, and I say this as someone who well remembers Richard Nixon, but why is that not likely to affect down-ticket races? Well, I think it might. On the federal side, you know, everything— the, the, the members in both parties all suffer from the same craving that is eternal to politicians, which is, I deserve to be reelected, and why do I have to work so hard? So they went about drawing districts that are easy to win. You know, there are probably only two competitive uh, districts, maybe three here in California. It's ridiculous. So it's just like a banana republic. And it's that way across the country. I mean, hell, and I, you know, we were all part of it. I used to sit around with my client, John Engler, in Michigan, and Sandy Levin, very effective Democrat was driving us crazy. We used to joke about trying to redraw his district into Ontario. (laughs) We'd give him Lake Superior. Um, And I used to live in a district in California that the Democrat machine drew that's only contiguous at low tide. So this is an old sports American politics because whichever party had the power would get its people safe. Well, the problem is now they're all prisoners of their primary voters. You know, they're all kind of locked in in these unbeatable districts. And the, not only is that a problem ideologically, it's a problem because the people who represent swing districts get wiped out in these kind of elections. So your, your, your knife and fork users are the first to go. So that said, I, I think it is possible we will lose 8 to 14 Republican members of Congress from an already kind of shrunken caucus from the last wipeout in 2018. You're talking about the House. But it's hard for it to go much, yeah, in the House, much deeper than that. Now, in the Senate, you know, I'm torn. I'm old enough to remember, as you are, waves like like 1980, where races that, you know, that popped, he didn't expect to. So right now we're all drunk on polling and analytics and all that stuff. And they show a close race for control of the Senate. You know, a lot of the Doug Jones under conventional wisdom probably loses in Alabama. But Cory Gardner and Susan Collins both lose their seats. Democrats pick up two. Dems pick up Arizona three. Now we're getting close. North and Carolina. Races like Bullock, my time, just North Carolina, where the Dems are probably led. 
something cuckoo may happen up in Alaska, even Marquez, you know, but it's, it's, it's tricky. Uh, maybe a little better than 50% chance that the Dems do it. Or it's 1980, and we're going to get a five-point jump this coming weekend. Uh, or it's already hidden in some of these, you know, 75 million uh, absentee and early votes that are flowing in. Uh, and then, pow, they win the Senate by two, you know. And it could happen. It feels that way to me, but you never, you never see a poll that guarantees it's going to happen. But it, it feels like there could be a pop in the, in the Senate. You know, you mentioned 1980, and of course, I remember the the Reagan coattails that that brought the Republicans a majority in 1980 for the first time since the 52 elections. But I also remember 1984 when Reagan won 49 states, right. which is not bad, and the Republicans lost in the Senate. Could go either way, though I will say what this thing to me is feels more like an 80 because it's basically like change, punish the guy in the White House, throw the incumbent out, you know, punish the incumbent's party. There was a villain. You know, Reagan wasn't a villain in 84. He was kind of reelected in a bit of a sleepwalk because right. Mondale could never get on his feet. So this thing feels more like a dump Jimmy Carter and his, his knucklehead um, <laughs> sweep in somebody new uh, than it does like kind of sleepwalking through 84, yeah. morning in America, reelect, right track election. You know, it just feels more ornery. And that makes me think more of an ejector seat button. But, the, you know, things are more polarized now. There's less room to swing. So we're seeing. Do you have a fear of what might happen should Trump lose? I mean, he said that the only way he could lose if it's a fixed election. If his supporters believe that, and I, get, I think they do, and we've seen what his followers are capable of, do you fear violence? Do you, are you nervous about post-November 3rd? I'm nervous about Trump's rhetoric, which is, again, why we're working so hard in Florida. And I, I've been hounding my friends at Bloomberg, uh, who are donors to our Florida program. They've been doing incredible work, and I've been hounding poor Howard there to try to do something late in Florida, and I'm so ha- excuse me, something late in Ohio, because both those states again will have real vote count, and if they both pop, then it's Trump is so so buried that I think that puts a better context around whatever irresponsible rhetoric he'll he'll take. But I'm worried about the rhetoric, violence. I'm a little worried about if he really whips his people up, um, and you know there are a lot of scenarios. Let's say he's lost, he he refuses to accept it, he's crazy. He can't believe there's a world where he's lost. So he's doing all that. And he's incentivizing violence. Then I'm going to take a look at the cabinet if we're cut two weeks of this, because the 25th Amendment is still there. And most of those cabinet members are thinking about, you know, their post-Trump lives because they think he's lost and they want reputations back. And they'd like to be on the board of Lockheed or get the million dollar year association job. So I think there could be a 25th Amendment moment there where they decide, God, we got to flush this guy. The trick will be Pence it would have to be part of it. And he's, you know, got his own ambitions. But I think he'd also want to get his reputation back. So if Trump is really, really bad, there is an escape valve there. Don't forget the Pompeo and the attorney general, too. I can't imagine them worried about their reputation, their post-election reputation, since they're not so concerned about it right now. Yeah, it's gone. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I agree it's a long shot. It's just one of the few safety valves that's there other than just ignore the guy because ravings of a lunatic. The other thing, and, you know, you're a student of political history, uh, and I will do a plug now, and you're probably more um, Trump-hating liberal or, or moderate readers may uh, not like this, but stay with me. 
Uh, Rumsfeld wrote a pretty good book last year about the history of the Ford administration, which he was a key member of. And there's a lot on how they had to ease Nixon out of office. And part of it was the deal they made not to prosecute him. Well, Trump's looking at trouble from the Southern District of New York, which is basically Godzilla. And Big Teeth, very interested in Trump, tax case, may have a lot. So he may be in a dealing mode after the election. You know, he may, the crazy may be in an internal war with the street smart. I got to get out of the mess I could be in after office because they sure as hell will prosecute me. And, you know, maybe he'll agree to go quietly for a little protection on that. Okay, so final question. Uh, You talked about uh, what Trump does if he loses. What about the Republican Party post-Trump? I mean, either this year or four years from now, I've heard from some people who say that if Trump loses, the Larry Hogan's and the Charlie Bakers of the world are going to try to get their party back. I can't imagine Trumpism going away no matter what happens. I don't see the future of the party, Larry Hogan or Charlie Baker. Well, that's a long stretch. As much as I admire both those guys, um, you know, it's still a conservative party. I, the conventional wisdom is Trump's here forever and he'll rule the party with an iron fist. I'm contrarian on that, but I'm guessing. Nobody knows. My view is he's like Sarah Palin on a much bigger scale. You know, she had a grip on the party. Everybody was afraid of her for about four months. Now you can pay her 500 bucks to open a shopping center. <laughs> so losing is a problem in the modern party, and parties are dynamic. Trump's cost us nine governorships so far, hundreds of state legislative seats. The Senate, probably, we'll find out. The House, certainly, already happened. And the presidency. So Trump will try to be relevant. Uh, Maybe he'll talk about one of his kids running. He'll start a streaming network. You know, who knows? Or he'll talk about running again, Bola Grover. Uh, But there are going to be other people. Because the the Republican mindset is going to be, we got wiped out. Trump was a disaster politically. This is what the inside world will say. And even the people who are most fawning about Trump are thinking, you know what, it's my turn to be the crazy populist running for president. <laughs> you know, he had his shot. He was a disaster. So they will wish him no, no good. They're going to want him kind of out of the way. So they're also going to look at the Democrats and say, Joe Biden's a one-term president, and there ain't nobody in the modern demography of the Democratic primary that can beat an African-American woman. So if Kamala Harris can just like show up for work every day, she's a strong front runner for the nomination. That's what they will be thinking. And then they will be thinking she was a dud candidate in the primaries. She was a dud vice presidential candidate. I can beat her. So you have a competition to who can kind of invent modernized Trumpism, half populist, half a little bit more of the old stuff. You know, the Josh Hollies, there are no shortage of these guys in the Senate, you know, maybe an evolved Ted Cruz. Um, Tom Cotton of Arizona, so excuse me, of Arkansas. So there'd be that wing. Then they're going to be the business Republicans who say, enough of this crap. We're scared crazy of the progressives. And Biden's holding them off, but barely. We got to get a good electable modern Republican. And, you know, yeah, they'd love a Charlie Baker, but they know, I think, the way the the primary works. And Baker's the kind of guy who might wind up for Hogan in the in the Biden administration, because I think Biden is generally bipartisan instincts. Finally, you have the 2022 looking at him. And there'd be a debate between, hey, we can we can have a comeback in the midterms because Biden's got a lot of tough, painful stuff to do fiscally. We can oppose all that and we can we can win stuff back. But if you look at the map, as I'm sure you have 100 times, it's pretty rough. So you're going to have some people in the party saying we got to do some governing here. 
And we got to get out of the Yahoo business or we're going to be in the Senate and the House minority forever. And that's not what I signed up for. I like the big office. So I, I think it'll be the Chinese Civil War with like 12 different warlords running around with small armies, each claiming to be emperor of China. Uh, and the 2022 elections will create some stars from different factions and bring a little more clarity to it. But I don't believe in the endless Trump lock. I think he's going to be like a rotten fish. The stink will be everywhere, but I'm not sure he'll have anywhere near the power he has now. Okay, final, final, final question, oh, wise one. Who wins on Tuesday and, and, and by how much? Uh, okay, well, guessing. I, I, I'm more in the wave where so Joe Biden, I think, wins. I think he'll be well into the 300s. Uh, I think he'll sweep the industrial Midwest, Wisconsin, and uh, uh, Michigan, my home state. I think he's going to win Florida and break Trump's back. And I think the odds are quite good they're going to pick up Ohio and Georgia uh, wow. and Arizona. North Carolina a little closer, I think. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a big number probably north of 335, 340 electoral votes for, for Biden. And, you know, six points nationally, maybe even a tiny bit better. But I would guess five and a half to six. Mike Murphy is a longtime Republican consultant and strategist who has nonetheless endorsed Joe Biden for president. He's a partner in the Revolution Agency, a communications firm in D.C. And while I can't imagine anyone listening to someone else's podcast, Mike has teamed up with Democrat <laughs> David Axelrod for the Hacks on Tap podcast. You might want to check that out. Mike, as always, it's so great talking to you. Ken, thank you. I'm going to give a big plug to this wonderful podcast that any serious politico has to listen to religiously. And while I've endorsed Biden, I just want to say I'm renting, not buying. I hope to rebuild the Republican Party where we can compete from the right in an honorable way. Mike, thanks so much. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at the Political Junkie. The Political Junkie podcast is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to vote. It means everything this year. And please stay safe. I'll see you soon.